You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. It was 10 minutes until 8 o'clock on Friday morning when an ordinary-looking man rode up the escalator in a busy Washington, D.C. subway station. He positioned himself against a wall and opened his violin case. He pulled out his instrument, its age showing, the finish on the back worn down in some places all the way to the bare wood. And he turned the case around to receive any donations a passerby might want to give. Then he began to play. For the next 45 minutes, as the man played a selection of classical music, over a thousand busy Washingtons hurried by. One or two cocked their heads, clearly enjoying the sound, but no crowd ever formed around him. One fellow realized he was running three minutes early for work, so he leaned up against a column and listened exactly for three minutes. Mostly, though, people simply went about their business, reading their papers, listening to their iPods, hurrying away to whatever appointment was showing up next on their screens. Oh, the music was good. It, fit, it filled the arcade, dancing and flowing with incredible precision and left a few people thinking later that at least for a split second that they'd paid attention, it really did sound like something special. The musician himself didn't look like much. Black long sleeve t-shirt, black pants, Washington Nationals baseball cap. But even so, if you stopped to listen, you couldn't help noticing that this was something more than another musician playing the violin for pocket change. As a musician, this guy was pretty amazing. One man even commented later that, the, that most people, they play music, they don't feel it. Well, that man was feeling it. The man was moving, moving into the sound. If you just listened, he said, you could tell in just one second that this guy was good. Well, of course you could, because it wasn't just any musician playing the violin that Friday morning in the subway station. It wasn't even a musician who was merely extraordinary. It was a man by the name of Joshua Bell. And at the time, this 39-year-old internationally acclaimed virtuoso who normally plays in the most celebrated venues in the world to crowds who respect him so much that they even stifle their coughs until intermission. Not only that, but that morning, Bell was playing some of the most exquisite music ever written. And he was doing it on a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin worth an estimated $3.5 million. The whole scene was, a calculated, was calculated to be beautiful. The most beautiful music ever written 
played on one of the most finely cal calibrated instruments ever crafted by one of the most talented musicians alive. And yet for all of that, you still had to stop and pay attention to see just how beautiful it really was. Greg Gilbert recounts this story in his book, Who is Jesus? And this is really the point Matthew is trying to make in the section of scripture that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew is trying to get across to his audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and you are missing him. He is right in the subway with you and you're walking right by him repeatedly over and over again. Matthew chooses to show us this point through three different narratives of Jesus' early years. You can see it in the outline that we're looking at today. So he begins by showing us the escape to Egypt where Mary and Joseph and Jesus escape to Egypt before what happens in verse 16 through 18, the massacre at Bethlehem. And then they'll return to, to Nazareth in verses 19 through 23. So I want you to stand with me, open your Bibles or turn on your screens to Matthew chapter two, verses 13 through 23, where we can read through this narrative of Jesus' early years of his life and what's going on. I want you to notice that three times Matthew is going to use this key word, fulfill. Okay, so as I'm reading through it, I want you to be attuned to the words, all right? Don't just tune me out and say he's going to come back around to it. I want you to listen intently and be watching for the words fulfill because it really outlines this whole thing for us by using this word three times in this section of scripture the word fulfill. The idea behind the word fulfill that Matthew is using here is it's a picture of what Jesus would do for all the people, just like they saw him do for the children of Israel. We are seeing in this section the completion of these prophecies and events in Israel's history. That's the heart behind the word fulfill. So let's begin chapter 2 verse 13, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 23. I'll read aloud, you follow along quietly. Now, when they had departed, or if you're the 830 service last week, deported, now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Or by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, surprise, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
A voice was heard in Rama, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and they went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Lord, bless the reading of your word now in our hearts as we study it. I pray that you would open our hearts to your word. May you transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we begin in verse 13. When it says, now when they had departed, so we know we're going to last week, the, the, the narrative is continuing here. The story of Jesus is continuing that Jesus is around one or two, the wise men have came to see him and now they're leaving. And remember, God had appeared to them through an angel to the wise men and said, don't go back the same way that you came. Don't go tell Herod that you saw the king, go a different way. That way, Herod won't know that, and, and it'll give time for Joseph and Mary to escape. So they go a different way. And an angel of the Lord, the Bible says, appears to Joseph in a dream. Now, Joseph ought to be getting used to this whole angel of the Lord appearance, right? Like he, we keep hearing this. Him and the angel ought to be buddy-buddy about this time because he's going to appear to them again. And so the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph again and says, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And so the angel appears and immediately in the, the text, it has urgency, like get out now. And we see that Joseph got the urgency because as soon as he gets the message, they leave by night. Like you think the wise thing would have been for Joseph to wait till the morning, have a little conversation with Mary and be like, hey, listen, this angel appeared to me again. Here we go, right? Like, you know where this is going. He says to get out. What do you think? Should we do it? No, no. It says immediately they got up that night and hit the road. They were funded. This trip was funded. This year-long sabbatical that they're going to go to Egypt is funded by the wise men from the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so it says he rose and he took the child and his mother in verse 14 by night. And they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. So this trip would have been 75 to 100 miles away from where they were to get to Egypt. So it would have taken them probably three or four days when they got the message to get to where they were going. And then they were to stay there until Herod was dead, which was about a year later. And it says that this was to fulfill, this was to complete what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So who is this prophet? This prophet 
is a man by the name of Hosea. And you find this in Hosea chapter 11 and verse one. So I have it on the screen, this passage. I'm not gonna bring up the scripture, but if you wanna write it down so you can go read it, here's what Hosea 11, one says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea is a story of a wife who is unfaithful to her husband repeatedly, yet the husband keeps taking her back. And over and over you see this. And it's not just even in a marriage. He uses this analogy to refer to the children of Israel, that even in their rebellion against God, God continually calls them back to himself. Hosea is using the deliverance of the children of Israel from slavery 700 years earlier as a reminder that God stays true to his covenant even when we break our end of the deal. Through Hosea, God is saying to the people, remember how God was faithful to his word and 700 years earlier brought you out of slavery. This is the same God today, Hosea, as he's speaking to his audience, the same God that brought you out as his, like, as you being his son. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were referred to as sons of God. And, and so now he's saying, I'm bringing a new son, a greater son, who's going to deliver you out of of slavery, going to deliver you from the bondage to sin. So think about this. As Matthew quotes this as a fulfillment, that Jesus is the fulfillment, that out of Egypt, he would deliver them, that he is going back 1,400 years and saying, all the way back when I delivered the children of Israel out of slavery, I was thinking about your redemption. I was thinking about how the fact that even though you would reject, even though you would be my enemy, I had a plan to deliver you from the bondage of slavery that you find yourself in. A greater Moses was coming as well as a greater Exodus because Christ would once and for all save his people from their sins, from their life of slavery. He is the one who keeps his steadfast love Amen. And as he quotes this, he's reminding them of this. Matthew is saying to his audience, don't you see that Jesus is the greater son I have called out of Egypt? Don't you see this? That he is the one that 1400 years ago, when I called you, my people, out of Egypt, he is now the one who is the fulfillment, the completion of that. He is offering you freedom once and for." all. He escapes from to Egypt. Then we have the massacre at Bethlehem in verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so as we know from meeting Herod last week, that Herod wasn't a great guy. And we see this come out in his leadership again, that as he thinks about being threatened, even though he's close to dying, within a year, he's going to die. 
Because of this threat, he goes to Bethlehem and the region of that area and he wipes out all the baby boys two years old and under. So to know the ramifications of that, you have to know that there was probably around a thousand people in Bethlehem in that area at that time. So you're probably talking about 10 to 20 families who lost their sons on that tragic night. As the men followed Herod's orders and they came in and found all the babies, boys that were two years old and under and killed them. You're probably talking about 10 to 20 baby boys that were killed on that night. And it says, Matthew says to us today, then in verse 17, this was fulfilled. This was completed. What was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In this prophecy, Jeremiah is speaking of a great sorrow that would soon come on Israel when their sons would be carried away to Babylon. Ramah was a town where Jewish captives were gathered to be sent off to Babylon. So you go to Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 1, and you can read about this, where they gathered the men of and the sons of the Israelites, and they took them away to captivity in Babylon. That's where Daniel goes and those men with him. And you could hear the cries of Rachel and her daughters on that night as their kids are being taken away from him. And so Jeremiah says, as what happened in Jeremiah is a fulfillment of what is happening today as we hear the cries from Jerusalem. Rachel was used really as a picture of the uh, women of the Jewish woman. And so Rachel was sort of a summation of that. They would use her name to refer to all Jewish women. And so Rachel was the one that was crying in this moment, but they're pointing to the reality that as they're crying, they were like Rachel and the women in that time crying as their sons were taken away. Now we read this and we think, well, that's really sad, right? That he would say that this sorrow and this crying would come and they couldn't be comforted. But we only know this one verse. If the Jewish audience was listening and they knew this story, they knew the rest of the story. Because if you go to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15, you find what Matthew chooses to quote for us, but he doesn't quote 16 and 17. See, listen to verse 15 of Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The, Jeremiah's predicting this, but then look at verse 16. The sorrow, verse 16, you have hope. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So as Matthew is quoting, yes, there is sorrow in the moment, but the sorrow is also leading to hope. 
Jeremiah is reminding the people that God has not forgotten them. Even in their sorrow, when they're crying out as their sons have been killed, God is bringing about hope through the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew is saying to his audience, don't you see Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to turn our sorrow into joy? That Jesus is initiating a new covenant with his people through his own blood. And that this sorrow that you hear, this groaning that you hear in Bethlehem is leading to joy. This pain is leading to healing through the person of Jesus Christ. Don't you see that? Then he goes on and says, of the return to Nazareth in verse 19. But when Herod died, and again, timeline, we're probably looking about a year out. So now Jesus is anywhere between two and three years old. Behold, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. All right, so here we go again. Joseph and his angel hanging out saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So God brings the news. We didn't have internet back then, right? He couldn't go check out the news and see. God brings the news through an angel and says, listen, Herod's gone. Those who sought your life, even those that were in his cabinet that didn't want you, they're gone. You can head back to Israel now. And when he rose, he took the child and his mother and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, and this is one of Herod's sons, was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So what's going on here with Herod's son, Archelaus? He, like his dad, was a pretty ruthless guy. And so what had happened is, right before his dad had died, he had two of the most famous or popular Jewish rabbis in that time killed. Well, rabbis had followers, all right? These teachers had disciples and they had followers. Well, these followers planned an insurrection against Herod and when, or against his son here. And when they planned this insurrection, Archelaus had 3,000 Jews killed in that moment. So as he takes over his leadership of his, from his father, he continues these mass killings. And he has 3,000 Jewish, and, and not even those who were a part of the insurrection. He was just killing any Jew. If you were in the vicinity and you were a Jew, you were being killed. And so Joseph hears about this and is warned in a dream and says, we're not going to go back to that area. That would be unwise of us because we're Jews. So we're not going to go to that area. We're going to go to Nazareth. And so it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. The population of Nazareth at the time when Jesus lived there was about 500 people. And of these 500 people, they were noted for their crude and violent ways. The people of Nazareth were not looked up to as model citizens. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 46, Nathaniel makes this statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right. That's the kind of reputation they had. 
was like, is there anything good that can really come out of that city of 500 that are known to be crude and violent people? The point was, no, the reality of that was no, because they were, had that reputation. And yet it says this was a fulfillment. This was a completion of a prophecy. And it says by the prophets that might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, what's interesting, if you study this out, is that you can't find in the Old Testament any place that it says the Messiah or the king or the anointed one would be called a Nazarite. You study the whole Old Testament. Like, you're not going to find Hosea 11.1, where it's word for word. You're not going to find Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. That is word for word. And yet, Matthew says that the prophets, that this is a fulfillment of the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So what is he talking about? Well, there's two really options here. The first is this Nazarene or this Nazareth. The idea of it, the root word of it is this idea of branch. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, and this sort of goes along with the theme of the book of Matthew, that Jesus is king. If you go to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is the son of David, right? So a branch, and that's where the root word of Nazareth is this idea of branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so what they're saying is, the connection here is this is the prophets were saying that he would come from a branch. That is the idea of Nazareth, a Nazarite. He's coming from the branch. I, I think that's a can be used. I don't think there's anything wrong with that interpretation, but I would tend to lead towards Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 3, when it is speaking of the Messiah and it says that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Psalms chapter 22 verses 6 through 8 also points to this idea that Jesus would be a despised servant. So what you find is that when Matthew is writing this letter, this story of Jesus' life, not a letter, a story of Jesus' life, that the early Jewish persecutors of the church were persecuting them because they believed that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. And he was despised because he was from Nazareth. And so it's the fulfillment of this prophecy, not just in Isaiah, but this prophecy in Psalms 22, that he is despised and rejected by men. And that was coming true right before their eyes. As they were saying, there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah, the anointed king that we're waiting for, because he's from Nazareth and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Matthew is saying to his audience, don't you see Jesus is the fulfillment of the king who would come, who would be despised by people because of his humble beginnings. So who is Jesus? Matthew's goal was to get his audience to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
That's why he uses the word fulfill three times in this section. This is why in the first two chapters, he's constantly going to the Old Testament because he wants his audience to understand that Jesus is the, pro- is the fulfillment of the prophet or the, the fulfillment of the king and the Messiah who the prophets foretold. Jesus is the king. And if they could see this reality, they could stop looking for another king to come and submit to his rule. And what's sad is they were reading the word and having the word read to them and they were missing what was right in front of them. The Jewish people keep looking when what they were looking for was right there. It was Jesus. It is like having a world-renowned violinist playing in the subway and walking right by him because you're too busy looking for the next thing or the next appointment. And right in their subway system was Jesus the King And they were missing him over and over and over again. And he's saying, look at the prophets. Look at Micah. Look at at Jeremiah. Look at Isaiah. Look at David. Look at all of these things that point to Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Before we're too hard on Matthew's audience, we often make the same mistake in our lives. Salvation is available to us today through the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter one and verse 12 says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And yet we continue to look for salvation in other people or other things. We wait to see if something better will come along. When Jesus clearly says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I would say to you that are here under the sound of my voice or watching online today, don't miss what is right in front of you. Don't be like this audience who had the words of life right there. He was walking among their midst. Many of them had already seen him and known who he was. And Matthew is saying, you're missing it. Even the Old Testament prophets that you study, you're missing it. He was right there. Don't miss the reality that salvation is available to you today through the person of Jesus Christ right here for you. Today, the Bible says, is the day of your salvation. Don't miss it because you've gotten caught up in religion. Don't miss it because you've gotten caught up in in trying to figure it out before you even take that step of faith to believe. Trust in Jesus. I was reading through a book about deconstruction and the deconstruction of the Christian faith and how this is a phenomenon amongst our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ of deconstructing their faith and not even believing, turning to atheism. And as I was reading one chapter of that book this week, it talked about this idea that faith begins our journey with Christ. And so often we want to have all the facts figured out. We want to have everything lined up before us. And it's that first step of faith that begins that journey. 
And that's why I'm calling you today to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I understand that some of this may be confusing. That to read this, like how does all that work together? Some of that may be confusing, but it begins with a step of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the problem is we want to boast about how we got it all figured out, and then we took a step of faith instead of by faith, and then we follow Jesus. I would call you today to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't miss what is right in front of you. Say that. Not only is salvation available to us through the person of Jesus Christ, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, sanctification is available to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we continue to search for better ways and better tools to look like Christ when he's given us himself. This is why Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter two, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. What has the grace of God done for us? It's brought salvation for all people. This is the grace that's available to you today. But look at what verse 12 says. This grace of God that not only saves you, it sanctifies you, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God that saved you is the grace of God that will sustain you to look more and more like Jesus Christ. So stop trying to work your way to heaven. Let that grace motivate your godliness. Stop trying to figure out new tools and new ways to, to figure out sin in your life. And yes, we've got to combat sin and we've got to use the word and all these things. But let the grace of God motivate your obedience. Stop trying to rely on your good works. We say that's bad for salvation. It's just as bad for sanctification. Rely on the grace of God. Let that be the thing that motivates. Don't miss that. It's right in front of us. It's all throughout the pages of scripture. It's all throughout the New Testament that it's the grace of God that motivates us to live lives worthy of the gospel that we proclaim. But not only does the grace of God, is not only is that available to us, the word of God is available to us. At Antioch, we believe in the sufficiency of scripture. We believe that scripture has all that we need for life and godliness. Here's how Paul puts it to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We don't have to read another good Christian book to have what we need in order to live a godly life. We have what we need to live a godly life right here in the word. And yet we're always, I feel like as followers of Jesus, we're always looking for that next book that's going to help propel my walk with Christ. We're looking for that next celebrity Christian author to come out with a book that's going to transform our life. We have it. We're missing what's right in front of us. So why don't we soak our souls in this? 
Why don't we listen to this? Why don't we fill our minds with this? Why? Because this is what's going to perfect us. Say that, Pastor. This is what's going to complete us. This is what's going to help us be all that he has called us to meet, to be. Church, let's not be like Matthew's audience that missed what was right in front of them. Let's not in the hurriedness of our religion and our busy schedules to miss salvation is available to you through the person of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that sanctification is available to you through the person of Jesus Christ. Let's not miss it because we're so busy doing other things or we think we've got it figured out. Let's rely on the grace of God. And may God give us eyes to see what is right in front of us. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you for how you would inspire Matthew to write these prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, that Jesus completed in Hosea, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Psalms. And as Matthew was trying to call out of his audience to see what was right in front of him, help us as a church not to miss what is right in front of us. Sometimes my heart is heavy for people that sit in these seats week after week and they're relying on their good works. They're relying on a religious experience to get them to heaven and they're missing you, Jesus, I pray that that would not be the case. I pray that they would be drawn to you through your word. And then I think so often in my own life and in lives of people in this service today, we, we say, yes, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone, but then we go to live out our lives and it's the total opposite of that. And we're looking for the next thing that's going to motivate us to follow Jesus. We're looking for the next thing, the next book, when you've given us the grace and you've given us your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not miss what's right in front of us. May your grace and your word motivate our obedience to you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.